everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about their challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. We've all been at the receiving end of great customer service and really cringeworthy customer service from different companies. And the truth is, our expectations as customers is only increasing. According to Accenture, 75% of consumers are more likely to purchase from a company that knows their name, their purchase history, and recommends products based on their personal history. So this is a critical area of focus for a lot of companies and the focus of our podcast today. My guests today are Kair Kasper and Martin Kiva, the co-founders of Klaus. Klaus is a tool to improve customer service quality by making internal feedback easy and systematic for customer support teams. Founded in 2018 in Tallinn, Klaus has previously raised money from Creandum of Sweden, several prominent angels, and recently from the Global Founders Capital, whose portfolio also includes Slack, Revolut, and Delivery Hero. In today's podcast, we'll delve into the key trends in this area and learn a little bit more about how Klaus is making a dent in this space. So welcome, Kair and Martin. Hi, great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. I'm going to start off, obviously, with a little bit of your backstory. I know that both of you worked at Pipe Drive prior to founding Klaus. Can you tell me a little bit more about those early days? How did you come up with the idea of Klaus? Was it from your time at Pipedrive? Sure. So I'm Martin for the listeners. And the the idea indeed came from the time at Pipedrive. So I was the global head of customer support. And the problem was my own at Pipedrive where the quality of customer service seemed like it could be improved, but there were no very obvious methods for doing it. So there were lots of great tools for making sure that the efficiency-related side of things was under control, like how quickly you answer uh, the questions and how you distribute them. So using tools like Zendesk and Intercom, you can do that. But there was no clear way of making sure that the actual answers are consistent and there's a way to improve them. So I started looking for a tool where you could internally give feedback to your team and we ended up doing it in spreadsheets and that's when I showed our spreadsheet to Kair. Yeah, and I was, we actually both together with Martin joined Pipedrive very early on when they were maybe around 20, 30 people. And as Pipedrive grew, so for example, when I left Pipedrive, they were at 500 people. But together, Martin, when you joined, I think you had six customer support agents. So, yeah, so in, six or seven, yeah. yeah, so in, in that environment, it's really easy to really understand what, what somebody should improve on and so on. But as the team gets to maybe 20, 30, 40 people, then it's the visibility disappears and it gets much more difficult. So yeah, when we started doing this in, in Pipedrive, Martin initially showed me this uh, spreadsheet that loaded up for a few minutes. And because Pipedrive's own customers also were sales teams that, that came off of spreadsheets like that. So I immediately understood that there has to be some kind of like a better way of doing this. Yeah, maybe wow. you should also explain like that. So like what the product actually does. So the, the concept is similar to maybe code review in engineering where engineers give each other feedback on the code that like they're contributing to the whole or the editorial process in writing where you send something off to an editor or a colleague to get some feedback. 
So a similar thing happens in customer service where in order to make sure that the answers that are going out, like the content of the answers is good, you need to get feedback and give feedback internally within the team because only the team actually knows like what good is. So like asking the customer for their feedback is not really sufficient because they can tell you from the customer's perspective. But in order to make sure that the quality is good, you need to have this internal feedback process. And if you need to give feedback on you know, tens of thousands of conversations, then doing that in spreadsheets, it's, 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 that's no good. So that's like the equivalent of trying to send out 10,000 emails from your personal email account. So that's kind of the, the problem that Klaus solves. And now with some machine learning enabled features, we're you know, improving and like speeding up that feedback loop. I think anything in spreadsheets is prime candidate to be reimagined. But did you always know that at some point you will start your own company? Is that something that you were always thinking about and it was just about what idea you wanted to do? Or was this something you decided to take a plunge because of what you saw in terms of the pain of the spreadsheets and the actual problem? So me, I've actually had a few companies already and I think we've uh, done some, let's say, maybe not, you can't call them fully companies, but projects together with Martin before we we started with uh, Klaus as well. The most recent one is actually an applicant tracking system called JobKitten, which is actually live today and then free for everyone to use. We couldn't make it economically viable, but but it's out there. And that's how we got like our first uh, try at building something together, like a SaaS product. But we've done the projects together previously as well. And I used to have my own digital agency, which I ran before I joined Pipedrive. So I was already familiar with this whole kind of entrepreneurship world. And that works really well for me. And we also created our first customer loyalty program together when we were selling beer at a beer festival. Wow. We were like Indeed. 19. Both of you have already worked together and tried it out. And, and so that was already something that you had in your bag. And it was just about creating the next company based on the next idea. Okay. So why do you think it the right opportunity for a tool like Klaus at this time. I mean, I think about Amazon. I feel Amazon has great service. I don't know what they're using for tools, but I feel like Amazon's customer service is is really quite good. So what are the trends you're trying to capitalize on and why why now? Sure. So like one of the things that we've talked about between ourselves and our investors is this, let's say, secondary trend to the big automation trend in the customer service space. So the, the really hype thing that everybody sort of knows and uh, you know, we absolutely agree that it's like going there is that like the transactional customer service will be automated to a large degree. Like, and there really is no reason why humans should be answering yes, no questions in customer service. Whereas the, there's a secondary trend, which we think is much less noticed, which is that what is happening to the human side of the interactions. So we don't think that they're actually going away. And we're seeing that it's not happening. What is happening is that it's moving to like a higher value domain where human empathy has like some inherent value. And there are uh, certain kinds of uh, conversations that you do not want to automate. 
where like both sides are humans and it's more about the relationship rather than just information exchange. So we are focused on that side of things where it's higher value, more about the relationship where it really matters how you communicate. And our bet is that it's not only going to remain there, but it's going to increase. And it's also going to increase in value. Like that part will become more important for, for companies. So for example, imagine uh, if you're buying, I don't know, like a Porsche or whatever, you would want to have that human to human relationship talking about what you want and your needs and so on before you actually make the purchase. The same would go for maybe B2B businesses, SaaS businesses where the payments are recurring, but where the contract values might be large. So again, like another area where you really want to have those relationships going forward as well. And and it's true what Martin said as well, that the value of those conversations will go up. And the biggest problem actually with them, which is actually a problem for, for example, for Amazon right now as well, <laughs> I would argue, and any big uh, company that does uh, customer support at a large scale, which is the consistency. So it's so interesting. Yeah, I was about to just say consistency in large scale teams. Exactly, exactly. That's the big one. For example, I travel around quite a bit and I use Airbnb a lot. Uh, and I actually use Amazon a lot as well. And what I've noticed myself, the evidence of, of, the, of this theory is that it really depends on who I get as the customer service agent, like the type of experience I will have. I, sometimes I have like excellent experiences. Everything works super well. Sometimes it's like so-so. And also, interestingly, I've occasionally had the same problems, but I get different kinds of solutions, which also shouldn't yeah. happen. Yeah, no, actually, and there's a more serious impact of what you're talking about in terms of the consistency. I read a book, it's called Future Crimes. It's written by this guy who was an ex-FBI director. He had his identity stolen. And one of the ways that happened was because the person who eventually stole his identity, somebody in Taiwan, some kid, but what he did was he knew that everybody had an Amazon account. Hmm. And so he called different customer agents and saying, I don't remember my credit card number. Mm. And he got like, you know, three or four that, you know, didn't give it to him, but the fifth guy did. And that's how he got that. The point is exactly what you're saying that, you know, if there isn't this consistency, it's not just a question of just poor service. It could actually damage the company in a, in a more Absolutely. significant way. Yeah. Exactly. And that's what we hear from our own customers as well. So for example, you could have like a huge e-commerce business, for example, and you have somebody who's a regular customer of yours just makes one small little buy, isn't happy with it, wants to return it. And in the customer service, you know, like the conversation that they have, they get wrong information. And now they get into this loop of having to have this conversation for a week with several different people. The customer gets really angry. You know, they might post about it on social media as well and so on. So again, like it's very important to find where these conversations go wrong and train your agents to, to be more consistent in giving these answers. Yeah, yeah, I had this problem with a bank and in one of my banks. I think ba banks, you know, this internet service providers, the phone companies, that's, yeah. these are the usual kind of targets. Okay, so now you are at Pipedrive, you have this idea. What did you guys do next? 
Well, the first thing was we found ourselves a technical co-founder, Econ, and we didn't have any real money at that point. We paid them as something symbolic, but he was interested enough to, to build the thing. Very short version is that me and Kyer, we agreed on a point where we can say like, yes, this is a real thing, which was having an unbiased paying customer. We had built, a, built the prototype and then it's when we went out to like raise our first round of funding. So you raised your first round after you had a prototype of the product and one customer? Yeah, correct. Two customers, in fact. But the one thing that I'd want to emphasize maybe for listeners as well is that the co-founder that we found was something who I worked together in an advertising space, let's say, and he had never built any kind of SaaS tool before. So it was really, you know, like he basically uh, just took some frameworks that he found and just managed to somehow slap this prototype together. And we managed to get some customers uh, on this platform and then raise this money that helped us to build a proper version. So it is really possible to start uh, quick and dirty with a prototype. Wow. That's really interesting. I think there are a lot of entrepreneurs that have these great ideas, but don't have the technical capabilities to actually build the product and they need to go and find a technical co-founder. Mm. I think that's challenging to do, to find someone that you can trust, who is smart enough to know how to build an MVP and also that you trust enough to know that they are being you know, fair with you in terms of the time it's going to take and what their share is in building it. So do you have any advice on finding this technical founder? So my quick answer, and I've had this question before, is hackathons. There's tons of hackathons happening all over the world that you can join online. I used to go to these hackathons uh, in Estonia as well. Hackathons put you in this environment where you, in a very short period of time, have to work together with this person, let's say for a day or two, or maybe a week, depends on the hackathon. And you can really understand what their aim is. Do they just want to make a lot of money or do they want to really build something? You, you can get a better understanding yep. of the person. In hindsight, you know, we got very lucky with Econ that he's mm. the type of person that he is. But it is, it is also very easy to end up in a different situation. So especially in the beginning, critically assessing, like, is this working out? Like, are we sort of getting along? Are we sort of aligned? It's pretty important because like that will be, chances are like that will be the foundation of the foundation. If it's not solid, then like you can have uh, very dramatic problems down the line. Yeah, absolutely. 100% agree. And I've seen several companies in Estonia who have had the ideal total addressable market, ideal product, everything, but then the team falls apart, especially the driving forces between product and the technical side. So this hackathon idea is really good. So you basically join it and you get paired with some random person and then you work on a project. I've never been in a hackathon. So, so hackathons usually happen that there's a, first of all, everyone can pitch their ideas and then people just organically form around certain ideas. If you don't have a team, then you can join another idea. But basically there's maybe, let's say 20, 30, 40 ideas in the beginning. And let's say you form teams around 10 and then you start building those things. So now you have the idea, you have a product, you have two customers. What are some of the things you did to go raise money? Yeah, absolutely. Like in our case, I think we were in a kind of privileged situation thanks to Pipedrive. So we had direct access to, to VCs. Um, however, 
now having raised several rounds, like the good news is that VCs will talk to you because the fear of missing out is one hell of a strong force. So in that sense, it, I don't think it's a big problem to just talk to them. But of course, if there's external or unbiased validation, like for us, it was like the fact that we had worked for Pipedrive. If there's anything like that, a warm intro, your chances will increase a lot. But I also have to say that in the beginning, we talked to a lot of VCs who we had absolutely no connections to. If you're a... A good VC, let's say pre-seed or seed VC, then you really do want to look at a lot of ideas. I think in later stages, it's more of, I only want to look at validated ideas that have a strong background and have done good things already. But in the pre-seed or seed stage, that's your business, right? That you look through just a lot of different uh, ideas. So it is, I think, possible for anyone really to get into these talks with uh, these VCs. So you had VCs as well as angels in your initial seed round? Yeah, we had uh, one former Pipedrive colleague who was actually the very first person to say like SMN. And how did you grow initially? Was it one customer at a time, referrals from the customer you made, inbound? Like what was your growth strategy in those early days? I mean, I think in the in the very early days, it was uh, Martin Hasseling. So for example, our first uh, customers we got through... Uh, Martin presenting at a conference, just very quickly mentioning Klaus and what we do there. But as for the kind of like the strategy that we took, that was more around just creating a visibility around us. So we started working on content marketing. We made ourselves visible in different marketplaces. We were active in communities. There's a big customer support, specialist community support driven. Actually, another very important part why Klaus even exists, the whole community and then the conference that, that I mentioned is also was a support-driven conference. So we were really active in support-driven uh, community. And then, well, as time went on, if you have a really good product, then what really helps the business is also that people start recommending you to others. So the, the word of mouth part uh, is, is actually one of our biggest uh, sources of new leads now. When you talk about community, there are so many communities for customer support. How did you find which were the ones that you wanted to engage in? I've been now sort of exclusively in the customer support uh, world for right. okay. six, six years. But I wouldn't say that there are too many of those communities, at least the, the type of customer service that we're talking about, which is this modern modern customer service that puts a lot of emphasis on how the the customer actually sort of ends up feeling not so much about efficiencies and cost saving and uses modern tools so for that support driven i think is probably the biggest like they have like 7000 people congregating on slack and it's uh, super high quality but i was going to their conferences already in 2014 so for us we were in the community it wasn't like oh we have this idea and now we're going to start looking for a community we were a part of it and a lot of the really embryonic validation came from there where we just had an idea and we asked around and a few people said yeah that very basic general idea that you had. Yeah, I think that's good. Yeah, I think like, that domain expertise was a huge, huge strength and asset for you. I mean, you were not walking into this space blind. You had so much experience and knowledge of, of that area. I think that was the difference between this and our previous thing where neither me or Kyle had that. That experience. Okay. So, you know, I looked through your website and... 
what struck me was the kind of brand you seem to have built around your product and around your company. It seems really close-knit, informal, and quite strong and very positive. That's the impression I got from the little desk research that I did. And I'm curious to understand, what do you think came first? Was it brand building or was it the community or was it the product? And the reason I ask, I know all three are very important, right? But as an entrepreneur, you're so strapped for time and resources and budget. You can't sort of do everything at once. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about how you prioritized and sequenced what you should focus on Mm. in your early days. I think we definitely focused on the product first and uh, really to understand if it it is actually a good idea to start uh, working on this and building this uh, further. But I think the brand kind of came organically as well because the brand is very much in line with our own approach to life me and martins (laughs) and i think it's you know like a strong basis for the entire company culture that we currently have as well so very early on we knew that we don't want to build something that is you know works is valuable but is super boring so we also want to i think it's the same like if you want to if you work somewhere you want to have some fun while doing it and so on one of the early kind of really good examples of the type of business that we wanted to build was MailChimp. Yep. So they do, you know, their, their product is really good. Maybe they've taken some strange steps now in the recent times, but in, in the very early days and the, how their kind of like growth looked like in the beginning, they had a very strong product, but they also had fun while presenting that product. And that's exactly the type of, of approach that we were taking now and, and have been taking. You know, like we have this cat character, Klaus, also named Klaus. Our product is named Klaus, but it's actually our overlord, Klaus, that just asked us, made us name the product also Klaus. So a character is really fun and we play around with the character a lot. It's it's partially also like a strategic thing as well, because positive emotions make people talk. So we have tried to create those positive emotions on our website, uh, in our content that we put out there, even in our product, we have those uh, small quirks and things that, you know, like make people smile. And it's, it is because I think uh, our, it's not like we and me and Martin, you know, constantly have to remind somebody to put this in there or work on these things. It's, I think, uh, just the kind of like the company culture that, that we've created now. Yeah. And it all comes kind of uh, organically to the, to the team. Yeah, I think it's definitely more that we just have certain kinds of people involved in that, that stuff. And it's just like channeled. So we don't sit and strategize on what uh, stock photo we should now like Photoshop the cat picture on. It just happens organically. Type of humor that our, uh, (laughs) like, I hope he never leaves like our designer has and we enable it and that's it. And so obviously the culture that you have built at Klaus depends a lot on the type of people you bring in. I'm sure at the stage of company you're in, you're probably quite intimately involved in recruiting. So how do you balance the the need to get a certain type of person that's going to create that culture, 
especially in the initial stages where you don't have that culture yet, you're trying to create it and you need these people to be part of that with making sure that you're not just recruiting people just like you that doesn't take into account diversity of viewpoint or anything else. The experience that we already have from Pipedrive is definitely one that objectively shows that so like having different kinds of people around the table also with decision-making power adds to the value. So it's not like some kind of uh, nice to have thing that you should strive for, but doesn't provide actual value. It's also easier for us to be diverse as we are a remote first company because mm-hmm. coming out of Estonia originally, Again, based on the pipe drive experience, it was clear that like if you need to hire very specific skills, then like you run out of talent. Talent is a city of four hundred thousand people. So if you need to get somebody with SaaS experience from the customer service area that speaks certain languages, then you're already left with like two people. So, <laughs> okay. And, and if you need to hire remotely, then almost by definition, you're going to get all kinds of different people. And we do have all kinds of different people. I think one thing also that we learned from Pipedrive times was that we have a very in-depth hiring process. So we usually have four or five interviews at least. We have a test task and so on. And if you put that on top of the fact that we really try to get as much talented people to apply as possible because we are remote, there is maybe like a time zone limit that we we look at when we hire for certain people, but other than that, there's no geographical limits. Yeah. So sometimes you find yourself like doing the fifth interview with a remote developer candidate from Poland and you get really carried away and then you're uh, late to your podcast interview. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, the other area that I know you've spent a lot of time thinking about is the area of inbound and setting up an inbound system of leads. I was wondering if you could talk about what worked for you and what you might give as advice to other entrepreneurs in the early stages. Mm -hmm. So content marketing was was a big source of of leads for Pipedrive as well. So we have experience with that previously and we took that experience and brought it into Klaus. So there's a couple of things that are very key in making that work. So one of those is uh, that you really know what you're talking about. (laughs) It really, really helps. So you can rely on maybe like outside sources as well to get this knowledge, but it's much, much more difficult to put out consistently good content in a short period of time if you have to rely on this external party. So we were really lucky that Martin, for example, has huge domain knowledge when it comes to customer service. Our head of product used to work at Automatic, lead a team of of, uh, customer support people there. We've got several other people in the team who either have worked on quality or have implemented the systems or have participated in, in some other way. So we have this domain knowledge So it's really easy for us to put out content because we know what we were struggling with ourselves and what might be the the pain points. So I know in content, there's like this big strategy that you look at, you do keyword research, look at what people are searching for and so on. I would say that that's 50% of our strategy. So we also do keyword research and so on, put out content based on that. But the other 50% is comes from the domain knowledge and comes from the interactions that we have within the community. And we just write about things that we think might be interesting for people who are in the same space. 
So, and together, put those two together, I think it's also very important how to present that information in a good way. We are, again, super lucky to have like an excellent person who writes these content pieces. We have a Mm. video producer who sometimes puts those pieces into like a video format as well. We have an illustrator that makes it easier to consume these uh, posts. So put that all together I think that's the key for our success within content marketing. But again, like the other couple of things that we did there was the community side that we are super active again, because of our domain knowledge. And again, because those people already before we started working on Klaus were already active within that community. And then there's the side of, let's say, working together with partners. So we have a lot of help desk partners like Intercom, Zendesk, and there's 11 others or even more actually. So we work together with them, try to put out content together with them, do all kinds of events together. And then, you know, try to be as visible as possible within, within their marketplaces and environment. Yeah, I think of all the three things you mentioned, which is the system of creating content that you have with the domain experts and the videographer and the writer, et cetera, the community aspect and the partner aspect. I've been in marketing for a long time. I think the missing piece for a lot of people that don't end up doing good inbound is that community engagement. A lot of people, I think, can create good content given the resources and time and the keyword research and everything else but they haven't thought about how to distribute that content effectively. Where are the people that care about that content actually sitting? And in your case, your domain expertise and your involvement in the community, you already knew where people would consume this content even before you've written that content. And that you had a pretty, I think, high degree of certainty that the content you're going to put out will will resonate with the people that would care about it. Obviously, Kair is the professional marketer here, but I'm guessing that there are probably others of potential founders out there that are from the sidelines. It seems like, oh, you just like write like some kind of genius content piece and then you post it on your website uh, with no visitors. And then if it's good enough, then like magic will happen. But in reality, it's like, no, that's the first step. Like then the sort of distribution work comes and you oftentimes it's paid distribution. So like for me as a non marketer, even though I've been like very close to marketing for a long time, <clears throat> that was like a you know bit of an epiphany actually. Absolutely. Okay. So where are you going to take Klaus next? Is it going to just focus on this training the human support team aspect and making them consistent and high quality and providing tools around that. Maybe you can talk a little bit about what you see for future of customer support and where you're going to take Klaus. I think the sort of foreseeable future, we will remain in the domain of like human to human customer support, because as mentioned before, we don't think it's going away. We think it's going to increase and it's not a challenge that can be solved. Uh, there won't be a moment where we'll say we have improved all the conversations between all human beings. So now we're done. Let's move on to chatbots. There are countless ways that you can help companies and brands improve how they talk to their customers. So I think like that is, uh, it's an infinite space in that sense. However, like the different ways that we sort of help 
companies do that. That'd probably be more. And many of them will also be like technology enabled, AI enabled, all that. Anything you want to add to that, Kyle? No, I think Martin uh, explained our approach pretty well. I think it's a super exciting time in that sense that uh, the whole space of quality related tools in customer service is a very new, it's a new category, basically. And what's super exciting is that we are at the forefront, basically, some of the features that we're currently developing. First of all, nobody has these features, but nobody is probably even thinking of building these features right now. So, and I think it's the same with some of our competitors. So the entire space is actually super exciting. And again, we have some very, very interesting things uh, coming out in the near future. Probably some of those are going to be hits. Some of those are going to miss it, be misses like, like always. But I think especially the machine learning side and actually also the usability side, which is a big thing for tools like us, is, is going to be one of the big, big uh, things that we, we're hoping to have like a breakthrough in because I think SaaS overall, you know, every, everyone is, is capable to to a good extent in even copying features and building out features but what will really make the difference i think at the end of the day is if you really want to use the tool how do you feel while you're using this tool and that will have huge implications in engagement and so on and and that's where i think that the future lies also Absolutely right. I mean, I think about Salesforce. I don't know a salesperson that likes Salesforce, but it's the managers that care about Salesforce because the numbers are there and the forecast is there. I I recently saw somebody joining a a startup and the startup, their kind of whole fame to claim is that they will help you fill in Salesforce a lot faster. And that's (laughs) a company with like huge VC backing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I think your focus on making sure that the person who's actually using the tool is enjoying using the tool is spot on and and I think a very good advice for others that are building their own products. Okay, so I'm going to switch to this rapid fire round where I just ask other random questions. But before I do, is there anything that I've missed that you would like to take a few seconds to say? Go to closeup.com. If <laughs> well, I'll include the links for sure. I'll include the links. <laughs> no, I think we've had a, a good chat and covered, uh, I think, most of the things that I had in mind. Okay, perfect. All right. So here's the rapid round and just one word answers or quick, you know, why is fine as well. Your favorite book, fiction or nonfiction? Well, my favorite book, I have to say, I have, I'm a huge fan of this uh, guy, Ray Dalio. He's a hedge fund uh, manager. So he has this book called Principles. So I'm a really big fan of this, this book. I, I know it's a little bit controversial because it might be a little bit too radical, but I think, you know, me and him, I really share uh, a lot of what he, he talks about and he has this systematic way of, of approaching things and, and uh, looking at life. So Principles is something that I would recommend to maybe these analyzing types like me. Okay. Martin, do you have one? Hard thing about hard things, Ben Horowitz. Of course. Yeah, that's a good one. Favorite city in Europe? I know you're in Tallinn, you're Estonians, but is that your favorite city or any other one? Where would you live if you could live anywhere in Europe? Yeah, I I recently discovered that uh, Madeira's capital, Funchal, 
might be one of my favorite cities. I, I think Madeira, you know, it's it's a, such a small place that you could you could basically argue that the entire Madeira is, you know, could be one city. But but yeah, Madeira Madeira is super nice and, and Funchal was really like a ten out of ten for me. Wow. Okay. Martin? Uh, Tallinn Tallinn and Lisbon. So ideal split would be something like sixty forty in Tallinn and then also Lisbon. Okay. Your favorite productivity tool? So for me, it's definitely Todoist. <laughs> it's uh, like this, well, to-do application. So I, I, after I read Getting Things Done, this book, which which was like weird because I read it like four years ago, and I really thought that 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 sort of thing is for, like it's it's for those people that can't do anything or you know, like that so on. And but I read that book, and after that, I started using Todoist, and it has completely changed my life. I think I'm you know like easily ten times more organized now. Okay. Google Keep. It's all very simple. Okay. And your favorite quote? Um, so, I, I, again, I'm really bad at quotes, so I don't know. I can't remember anymore who said it. <laughs> okay. And I even can't remember exactly how it went, but the, the quote is something like this, that I've been to a lot of bad thing, things, most of which have never actually happened to me. So it's this idea that like most of the problems you actually have in your head, I think that's kind of like the idea there has helped me a lot that really to maybe not focus so much on the problems that you have in your head, but actually focus on the problems that are actually there out there existing that you can, you know, look at and uh, that are real problems. Okay. Martin? Assumption is the mother of all fuck-ups. <laughs> Sorry for cursing. <laughs> I love that. Okay. So listen, we've come to the end of the podcast. Kair and Martin, lovely conversation. Thank you so much for joining me on this podcast and giving your time and contributing a little bit to bettering the European tech ecosystem. I'm a big fan of it. I, I have a huge passion and, and belief in the European ecosystem. And it's wonderful to meet people like you actually doing the great work. So thank you. Thank you thank for you. the conversation as well. Really enjoyed it. Likewise. Yeah. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and your ratings and review help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, keep building. Keep building.